Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hello listeners, Happy New Year to y'all. I hope you are as excited for 2023 as I am. I've got some really cool things planned for this podcast. If you want to hear all about them, you can listen to my episode 2022 Year in Review, where I talk about the great things that we accomplished last year and what I'm looking forward to and planning for this year. And before we get started today, I just wanted to say to y'all, this is it. This is your year. This is your time. Your time to quit the job you hate, to leave that toxic relationship, go on the awesome pl- vacation you've been planning for forever, move to a new city, eat healthier, exercise, whatever it is, no matter how big or small. This is your year. You can do it. All right, now, I know you are just as eager as I am to finally, finally, finally cover the history of this particular theater. So let's get started. This is Series 6 Historic Theaters, Topic 3, Part 1, The Century Theater. Now, if this is your first time listening, thank you, hello, welcome, and thank you for checking out Homegrown KC. Um, But to get an idea of what's going on with this series, I would recommend you listen to Parts 1 and 2 first. That would be the Empress Theater and the Opera Houses. This theater that we're covering today is actually what started me on the path of the series. So I was finishing series four, Treasures of Kansas City, actually this time last year, and I was thinking ahead to what I should cover, and I was like, okay, well, we obviously need to do Native American history. That became series five, People of the Island. Um, But as I was debating that, the Missouri Valley Research Center announced that they had a new collection available to the public called the Folly Collection. And it was 30, over 30, archival boxes of original material from the Folly Theater that had been donated to the Research Center, actually all the way back in 2014, and they just finally finished cataloging it. Now it's available, and I was like... Oh my god, this is amazing. If I was still in school, this would be the perfect thing to do my dissertation on. So instead, we're going to cover it here in the podcast. Of the theaters we've covered thus far, this is the only one that's still standing, still in use, and on the National Register of Historic Places. Triple threat. For those of you who don't know what the National Register is, it's a really big deal. So it's a national list. There are also state and local versions but it's a national list of buildings and sites that are of an artistic, architectural, historical, and or archaeological value um, to the nation. Um, how do I want to say this? To the nation as a whole, like to our national narrative. For something to be placed on the list, its history has to be examined in depth. And there's a really long form you fill out. The longest part, of course, is the section on historical significance. 
And there's also a really long review process before it gets to the list. Or not. Not everything does. But if you're denied the first time, you have a chance to reapply, so that's great. Once it's on the list, there are certain requirements owners or supervisors have to follow in order to remain on the list. It offers some protection, um, although it's not absolute. The building can still be um, completely destroyed. It's, it's not like, okay, once you're on the list, we control everything. It's more like, here are guidelines, right? Um, and in order to get people to say, yes, we want to stay on the list, we, we want to be on the list and stay on the list and follow these rules, there are some tax incentives that follow. Um, also, if you're on the list, there are a lot of grants that become available that are only available if you're on the register. So it's a really big deal. And why is the folly on this list? I will tell you. All right. So it was originally called the Butler Standard Museum, um, Standard Theater, or more commonly just the Standard Theater. And it was built in 1900. So this is its 123rd year. Opening night was September 23rd of 1900. And it was designed by Louis C. Curtis. Curtis, I briefly mentioned in topic one, um, as a possible architect of the Empress Theater, uh, he, he did a lot of buildings in Kansas City. We'll get to him in a minute. So um, the owner of this theater is Colonel Edward Butler. And Butler is giving me some Pendergast vibes. Um Y'all don't know who Pendergast is? Go listen to Series 2, Paris of the Plains. So, Butler is born in Rathdrum, County Wicklow, Ireland, on January 3rd, 1834. His father is James Butler, and his mare, uh, sorry, mother is Mary Cooglin. Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. It's C-O-U-G-H-L-A-N. He's the youngest of five children. There's Pat Butler... Eliza Butler, Catherine Butler, Essie Butler, and Edward. So Edward came to America as a young man, and he settled in Harlem. That's where he learned blacksmithing and, I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly, farriering. So, like, how to be a farrier. A farrier is a blacksmith that specifically works with horseshoes. Um, and... In, or possibly just a little bit before 1860, he moved from Harlem to St. Louis, Missouri. So he's 26 when he moves. On October 11th of 1860, he married Ellen O'Neill. And according to findagrave.com, they had at least four children. Edward Jr., Anastasia, James, and Catherine. However, another source said that he had eight children in total. And the reason I'm getting Pendergast vibes from Butler is he's also a political ward boss. And his nickname is Boss Butler. Like, ah! He became a prominent and wealthy businessman in St. Louis. He owned multiple farrier shops. And as a boss, he would send his Boodle Boys, which is a ridiculous name. I'm sorry, especially when you read it. It's B-O-O-T-L-E. It, it, Sounds like booty boys or something like that, you know? Um, or they're also known as Butler's Indians around his neighborhood to, quote, influence the vote. 
Another uh, source actually gave a more detailed description. Quote, In 1872, in return for getting votes for Mayor Brown, he awarded the contract for shoeing the city's horses. He, being Mayor Brown, gave it to Butler. His men who facilitated these votes, Butler's Indians, worked closely with Bad Jack Williams' Bottoms Gang that terrorized St. Louis and whose crimes included voter intimidation, armed robbery, assault, illegal lottery, and murder. In 1877, his support of Mayor Overstoles saw his brother-in-law James Hardy win the Sins garbage collection contract. It later transpired that Butler was Hardy's silent business partner. In the 1880s, he was indicted for conspiring to obstruct laws against gambling and lotteries, and he was investigated by the special jury for his undue influence over the House of Delegates. He avoided conviction, but his political reputation was tarnished. End quote. So, um, I actually found a few books. I didn't read them, but um, saw like the title and the description and all that. Um, that are all about gangs in St. Louis, and he's featured in them. Uh, quite a few, actually. In 1900, his son James was elected Congress. So Butler and his son James formed the theater circuit called the Empire Burlesque the- uh, Circuit Company, a.k.a. the Empire Circuit or the Empire Association, on August 18th, 1897. So it's like a chain, right? A circuit. Um, in this case, the Empire owns theaters across the company um, country. Getting a little tongue-tied, folks. And a burlesque troupe will perform at one and then move on to the next in the next city and then on and so on and so on until after a year, you're back at the beginning. There were multiple different circuits. Um, and for, they're like, there's vaudeville circuits and then there's specifically opera circuits and specifically vaudeville circuits and then there's like generic traveling performer circuits i found mention of a chitlin circuit in mississippi that was kind of a funny name um the orpheum circuit and the pacific circuit the pacific is in california um but the empire and columbia were the big two so of course there's a rivalry Empire is centered in the West, and Columbia is centered in the East. And I was really struggling to find information on the Empire and Columbia until I found Vaudeville Old and New, an encyclopedia of variety performances in America, and drypigment.net, which is a website about historic theaters, scenic art, and stage machinery. So excited to find these, especially this book. The specific post on this... um, Website, post, article, blog post, I'm not sure. Um, It was titled, quote, Tales from a Scenic Artist and Scholar, Part 442, James E. Finnessy and the Empire Circuit, end quote. So prior to the 1890s, there's no coordinated booking agency for traveling shows. It's basically a free-for-all. And I imagine that this played into the various troops' hesitancy in traveling westward because you don't know what you're going to find. You don't know what kind of pain you can negotiate for or what backups are available for when things go sour. In 1890, the Traveling Variety Managers Association formed 
and then the Eastern Circuit of House Managers. In 1900, Gus Hill, a former wrestler who worked in burlesque and vaudeville business between 1880s and 1920s, he formed the Columbia Amusement Circuit, also known as Columbia Circuit or Eastern Circuit, with a handful of other men. So Columbia liked to promote themselves as the clean burlesque, which I find hilarious. I mean, it's burlesque. Is there really a differentiation between, quote, clean and dirty? It's just it's weird. Um, anyway, according to Dry Pigment, quote, The Empire Circuit was a group of Western burlesque theater managers and producers formed on 18th of August, um, October, 1890. The Empire Circuit operated theaters in Baltimore, Birmingham, Buffalo, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, Detroit, Memphis, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, New Orleans, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, St. Louis, St. Paul, Toledo, and Washington, D.C. Their businesses off their business offices were located in Cincinnati, Ohio, but they also had offices in New York as some of the influential leaders resided there. End quote. So this was really cool. Remember Big Tim Sullivan from Part 2 of The Empress? If you haven't listened, you really need to listen to The Empress. It is wild. Um, but Big Tim is one of these influential leaders of the Empire Circuit. Mm, I just love when there's connections like that. Sometime between 1900 and 1905, the two circuits merged briefly, but then they split again in 1905. Also in 1905, James Butler, son of Edward, created, oh no, sorry, not created, um, was elected as president of the Eastern Circuit. Um, and this is not to be confused with the Columbia Circuit, um, because now they're just going by Columbia. This is a branch of the Empire Circuit that is expanding eastward. But by 1911, the Empire is running 37 different theaters across the country. And in 1913, out of nowhere, I mean, they're doing great, right? 37. Out of nowhere, because my sources lack details, and I don't know how or why this happened, Columbia Amusement Company takes over the Empire Circuit. Like, why? I need to know. Columbia begins to decline in the 1920s. I mean, this is alongside the general decline of vaudeville and burlesque in popularity. And there are several reasons for this decline, but actually the predominant one was the rise of movie theaters. In 1927, Columbia had pretty much lost all power and merged with its uh, rival, and actually it's, it's like a former product of um, Columbia called Mutual Wheel, um, and I say it's a, a product of because it was formed by a former Columbia executive, Isidore Herc, in 1921. He rose in the ranks in Columbia, and then he looked around and he's like, you know what, I don't like y'all's business practices, and left and formed Mutual Wheel. However, Mutual also collapsed soon after, um, in 31. They only had 10 years, um, but it's because of the Great Depression. Yeah, Great Depression sucked for everybody. He tried and failed to revive Columbia later. Um, it's kind of funny, though. 
It failed because he was arrested and served jail time for producing, quote, an indecent show in 1942. Um, before we move on and get back to Kansas City, I want to make sure I mention that the circuits as a whole, like the business and the folks running them, were constantly getting hit by lawsuits. So, back to Kansas City. Like I said earlier, the standard is built in 1900 by Louis C. Curtis. So let's talk about him real quick. He was born July 1st, 1866 in Belleville, Ontario, Canada, to Don Carlos Curtis and Francis Dever, uh, Dever Curtis. Yeah, I said that right. He was the fourth of six children. Sadly, both of his parents died by the time he was 19. He moved to Kansas City in 1887, and he remained here until his death on June 24th, 1924. He was a prolific architect and designed several buildings in Kansas City, many of which are still standing. Super awesome. Uh, he was known at the time and is remembered for his creativity. So he would design a building in Art Nouveau one year and then use a completely different architectural style on the next project. Um, he also liked to kind of mix and match architectural size a little bit, right? Like, he'd be like, okay, this is majority Art Nouveau, but I've got some elements in here that are neoclassical or something like that, right? Very cool. He studied architecture at the University of Toronto and the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. Probably didn't pronounce that right. Uh, when he first came to Kansas City, he was a draftsman for Adrian Van Brunt, uh, but then he left Van Brunt and partnered with Frederick Gunn in 1889. They formed Gunn and Curtis Firm. They worked together for 10 years, and then in 1899, Curtis went solo and he founded his own architectural firm. Um, he designed in other states, too, um, so... There are buildings of his in Virginia, New Mexico, Texas, Kansas, and Nebraska. So the standard was a three-story brick structure at the corner of 12th and Central. There had previously been a two-story house there. Quote, Curtis designed the theater as a spectacle of lights incorporating light bulbs alongside the outside facade and cornices, making the exterior as theatrical as the interior. Additionally, a giant lighted ball was affixed to a pole on the roof, theater's roof, and it descended the pole and remained illuminated while the theater was in use. The theater was also distinguished by the design motifs on the southern facade and the triple arch window inspired by Andrea Palladio. Don't know if I said that right. A 16th century Italian sculptor and artist. Curtis used galvanized iron and zinc ornamentation to embellish the light-colored pressed brick facade. Inside the building, pastels, delicate plaster work, and magnificent, magnificent chandeliers continued the elegance established by the exterior. The arched Palladian window on the main facade is reminiscent of graceful loggia of the Venetian Basilica designed by Palladio. The square Proscenium was 33 feet wide and the stage 35 feet deep. End quote. So the theater sat 2,400 people. Opening night was September 23rd, 1900, and the show was The Jolly Glass Window, 
which was described as, quote, a polite burlesque, end quote, again with the weird distinctions, starring Madame Dix, that's D-I-K-S, and it ran from 8 to 10.30 p.m. A couple of my sources had an image of the advertisement for opening night that was pretty cool to see, so I might include that in my socials. Prices ranged from $0.10 for the gallery during a weekday weekday matinee to $1 for a box seat during a regular evening show. In 1901, the Coates Opera House was destroyed. Spoilers. Listen to topic two. The acts that were scheduled for the Coates Opera House then moved to the Standard and performed there. Butler changed the theater's name in 1902 to The Century, so for those of you who were kind of confused because you're looking at the episode title and it says Century Theater, and yet we are talking about the standard, this is why. Um, it only spent two years as the standard. And yet it will spend a lot longer time as the Century. Um, I couldn't find any reason for this rebranding, though, so if anyone out there has an idea, let me know. A man named Joe Donegan was the manager of the Century. He was born in St. Louis in 1877 and moved to Kansas City in 1899. That's really all that I found. Apparently his name is super common. But one of my sources did report that he was known as, quote, the Angel of 12th Street, end quote. And I really, really, really want to know how he got that name and why. The Angel of 12th Street, that's so nice, right? I mean, it just sounds Really cool, too. He also managed the Edward Hotel, which was right next door. And I have not, repeat, not looked into the history of the hotel at all, because this is about theaters, not hotels. But given the name and that the manager's the same, I am going to guess that Edward Butler also owns the hotel. Again, not a factual statement. In addition, in addition... To scheduling burlesque shows, vaudeville acts, and other forms of entertainment, Joe also liked to schedule boxing matches in the theater for Saturday nights. One of the boxers was world-renowned heavyweight champion, uh, did I say that right? Yeah, heavyweight boxing champion Jack Johnson. He spent a couple of weeks in Kansas City and participated in several fights at the Century. Now, because he was a black man, he was not allowed to stay at the Edward Hotel, because, you know, racism and segregation. But some of my report resources, uh, try that again. Some of my sources reported that Donegan would sneak him in and out of the hotel anyways and let him and his wife stay there. However, disaster struck in 1920 and a fire destroyed much of the upper balcony. You know, that's been a really common theme with our theaters. I don't know if it's because they don't have good fire prevention practice in the early 1900s or if it's just something about theaters. But that's where we're going to end today's story. Thank you for joining me as we explore this piece of Kansas City's history. I hope you will return next month for part two of this topic, which is going to be Schubert's Missouri Theater. Sources. Lots of great online sources for today's episode. KCHistory.org. Cinematreasures.org, which I've been using for this whole series. It's a blog about historic theaters across the nation. Findagrave.com, always. Squeezebox City. Uh, I also found an article from the Martin City Telegraph. 
got a little bit of info from the Kansas State Historical Society website and the Missouri State Historical Society website. Um, and then also that website, drypigment.net, and the book, Vaudeville Old and New, an Encyclopedia of Variety Performances in America. Oh my god, this book is so informative. It was so cool. I really need to find it and keep it for future reference. I don't think I'm going to have any links for you today. If you want to become a financial supporter of the show, there are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Or if you don't want to do it every month, you can do a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or coffee.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com. You can give as little or as much as you want. If you become a monthly subscriber, you get three things. One, you get an item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. You get a shout-out on every episode and social media post. Thank you, Bjorn and Joan, for your continued support. And you get access to exclusive bonus content featuring, featuring other local historians, archivists, and museum curators. Everyone who simply donates will receive a shout-out on the next available episode, but you are not getting the bonus content or anything from the merchandise store. Additionally, if you decide to donate on coffee, uh, ko-fi.com, 1% automatically goes to help fight climate change. And if you cannot support me monetarily, because inflation is high right now and it sucks, I understand, you can still support me by following and subscribing to my Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Tumblr pages, and my YouTube channel. Tell all your friends and family, tell your coworkers, get them listening. I'm homegrown KC everywhere. And rate and review me on Apple Podcasts, please. You can visit my website for additional information. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. And at my website, you can sign up for my newsletter once a month. At the beginning of the month, you'll get an email that says, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what we're looking forward to. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of the social media networks. Thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the dear missus for the use of their song Kansas City as an intro and outro music of the show. To local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. And to you loyal listeners, thanks for listening. Cheers! Seem to get you off my mind. Thought I lost my nerve.